Devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful. And pray for us too, that God may open a door for our message, that we might proclaim the mystery of Christ, for which I am in chains. Pray that I may proclaim it clearly, as I should. Be wise in the way you act towards outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. Amen. Well, it's a, a great privilege and a great delight for me to be with you this morning. I, uh, I need to begin by pointing out what might be very obvious to you right now. Um, I'm an American. I don't know if you picked that up in my accent, um, but I just I thought I would begin by telling you that in America, we're, we're, we are all very intimidated by Irish and British and Scottish accents, and I don't have any of those. So uh, I'm feeling a little intimidated. We... Um, in America, we just think anybody who speaks with any kind of a British accent must be brilliant. And uh, so I'm, I'm feeling a little scared. Uh, I, and that's especially true of preachers. They get up and if they, if they ever say, uh, turn to the prophet Isaiah, we all go, oh, okay, yeah. So um, I just felt I needed to clear that. Um, uh, I am originally from New York, and, and so I've kind of lost my New York accent, but I could turn it back on if you want me to. So afterwards, we'll have coffee. We could talk. Um, <clears throat> my mother would be proud of uh, the way I'm talking. Um, in fact, I'm, I'm going to use that voice for a moment. I, I, I'm now serving with the C.S. Lewis Institute, and my colleagues, uh, Royce and Susan, are here, and they've asked me to announce that we have this discipleship program, a fellows program, and there still are a few days to sign up. And so, with all the one, one day, one day, so with all of my New Yorker, what are you waiting for? Come on, sign up. Uh, okay, I'm sorry. There are, oh, wait, wait, wait. No, no. <laughs> Oh my. Well, I'm here to talk to you about evangelism, and so maybe I should begin with another confession. I'm not an evangelist. Uh, very often the people who speak about evangelism find it to be very easy and natural and every day, and the vast majority of Christians go, oh, not me. Um, uh, as I mentioned, I work with the C.S. Lewis Institute. Lewis uh, referred to himself once as the most reluctant convert. When I uh, came on board with uh, this group, I said, could I get a business card that said the most reluctant evangelist? I'm an evangelistic coward. Um, but they, they said, no, we couldn't put that on the business card, so they came up with something like teaching fellow. But um, I, I, for many years, I was with Campus Crusade for Christ, an evangelistic organization, and all of the speakers that we had were always bold and fearless evangelists. They, they, they always evangelized. And I used to sit there thinking, I, I don't relate to this guy at all. I remember one speaker closing his eyes, and he said, I cannot sleep at night unless I've witnessed to one soul that day. And I thought, I'm sleeping just fine, buddy. I don't know what your problem is. I don't know. They always, they always witnessed on airplanes. Does, have you heard that? Is that uh, here? In, in America, it's, they're always witnessing on airplanes. I don't know why that is. High up, close to heaven or something. I remember one guy saying, I always pray for the person who's sitting next to me. And I just felt so guilty because I thought, I pray for an empty seat. Oh, no, there's, oh, there are people here. Um, 
So I, I, I'm hoping, though, that that's a kind of a strange encouragement to you. I'm a fellow struggler, and I want us to wrestle with how, how do non-evangelists, which is the vast majority of Christians, how do non-evangelists share their faith? Um, let me try to set the, the stage for you a little even more strongly, because not only are most of us not evangelists, many, many, many people around us don't want to hear So how do non-evangelists share their faith in kind of a hostile culture? Here, let me give you a picture. Uh, Not too long ago, I was on a a subway train, a train uh, in the Washington, D.C. area, very crowded car, uh, rush hour time, everybody going to work. And uh, the doors opened and a whole group of people came in. And right as the doors closed, a man who had just gotten on the car announced in a very loud voice, he said, may I have your attention, please? And and he got our attention because people don't do that in the Washington subway system. They They don't talk to anybody. They certainly don't make loud announcements. And, and to get our attention perhaps even further, the, there was a woman sitting right over here, right next to me, very close to where this man was, and she started screaming, no, no, stop. And I thought, oh, we're going to be on the 11 o'clock news. Uh, did I tell my wife I love her this morning? Uh, and, and he reached into his pocket, and I got very nervous, and he pulled out a book and he started to sing blessed assurance Jesus is mine and everybody on the subway car breathed a sigh of relief and they rolled their eyes and they went back to their newspaper everybody except the woman next to me who continued to scream shut up stop it was the oddest duet I've ever heard this is my story shut up everybody on the subway car was doing what I looking we got to the next stop. The doors opened. Oh, by the way, did you know that hymn has four verses? Huh. Um, and uh, we got to the next stop. The doors opened. He said, have a nice day. Got out. The doors closed. And everybody on the subway car looked at that woman who said, he does this every day. Now, why do I tell you that story? Um, because I think a lot of Christians think that's what evangelism is. Getting on subway cars or standing on street corners and singing or proclaiming in a very loud voice. And most Christians say, I'm never going to do that. And more and more, more Christians, I think, know people who have friends or relatives or co-workers who would like to just tell us to shut up. How, how, do, we, how do we step into this? Well, the short answer is uh, we step into this with a great deal of tension, Um, The longer answer is this sermon. (laughs) So uh, I want to say there are at least four tensions, and they were uh, touched on in the passage that was read in Colossians chapter 4. So I want to look at four tensions that we live with in proclaiming the gospel with the confidence that God uses us in the process. Um, the passage that was read from, was from Colossians 4. Let me give you a quick uh, run-through about the book of Colossians, because I think as you think and you remember the larger context of this book, then these verses in chapter 4 have, have a backdrop to them. Uh, Colossians is a book written to a church, uh, uh, to a group of Christians in a city that was very, very multicultural and interplay of a lot of different philosophies and worldviews. And Paul was writing to, set, to tell 
the Colossians that Jesus is supreme. Christ is the uh, focus of everything. He is supreme. He's God in the flesh. And chapter 1 of Colossians is perhaps some of the richest uh, passages in all of Scripture about the greatness, the supremacy of Christ. He's God in the flesh. All the fullness of deity dwells in him, Paul wrote in chapter 2. And in chapter 1, there's this whole big long list of magnificent truths about Jesus. Um, Here's one in Colossians 1, uh, verse 16. It says that all things were created by him and for him. Isn't that amazing? All things were created by him. Everything that exists was created by the hand of Jesus. But all things were created for him. It's two words. It's just absolutely mind-boggling. Everything that exists was created for the purpose of pointing to and giving glory to Jesus. Isn't that astonishing? Um, I grew up in a Jewish family where we didn't hear much about Jesus. What we did hear was that he was a good teacher. He's He's a good rabbi. Nothing more. When I read the book of Colossians, when I read the book of Matthew, when I read the claims that Jesus made about himself, it was this sudden shock of, oh, wait a minute, he's not just a rabbi. He's claiming to be God. He claims to be able to forgive sins. He claims that he has always existed, that he always will exist. This isn't just a mere man. As C.S. Lewis said, this is either God himself or a lunatic on the level of a person who calls himself a poached egg. Isn't that a great image? And so this book of Colossians tells us he's not just a rabbi. He's not just a teacher. He's God. And we need to revere him and worship him and submit our entire lives to him. In chapter 2 in Colossians, it tells who we are, if in fact we are in Christ, that we have received fullness and that we have now forgiveness of sins. If we are in Christ and we're trusting in what Jesus did on the cross, all of our sins have been nailed to the cross. And then in chapter 3, Paul starts talking about here's how this faith starts making a difference. Here's how it makes a difference in our own lives, the way we think about ourselves, the way we deal with temptations to sin, the way we start interacting with other people in the body of Christ, the way we start interacting with people in our family. And now in chapter 4, he says, and here's how it makes a difference as we interact with those on the outside of our faith. And so that's why Colossians 4, 2 through 6, is this wonderful passage about evangelism. Let me read it again, if you don't mind. Colossians 4, beginning in verse 2. He says, Devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful. And pray for us, too, that God may open a door for our message so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I am in chains. Pray that I may proclaim it clearly as I should. Be wise in the way you act toward outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. Four tensions, and the first one I hope you see is a tension between prayer and proclamation. He tells us to be devoted to prayer, and then without even pausing, he says, and pray for God to open up a door for our message. The evangelistic enterprise is this intersection of what people do and what God does. And so it makes sense that we would have to talk and speak and say words, but it also makes sense that we need God to work. Because unless God is at work in the lives of the people we're talking to, and in our lives, 
nothing of significance is really going to happen. The scriptures tell us we're dead in our trespasses and sins, but God in his grace made us alive together with Christ. And so we pray, as one person, uh, as many writers actually have said, we talk to God about people, then we talk to people about God. We pray for people to become hungry, curious, dissatisfied life with life without God. Do you have some kind of system where you're doing that, where you're praying for the non-believers that God has placed in your life? Do you see it not as just a coincidence that they happen to live near you or work near you? Um, we need to devote ourselves to praying for those people. Um, a few things about this. He, he tells us to devote ourselves to prayer. Uh, another translation says, remain steadfast in prayer. What, what does that tell you? It tells me that it's easy to quit. <laughs> if there's one thing I've learned about prayer, it's, it, it's that it's, it's easy to lose heart. That's why Jesus told a number of parables, it says, to tell us so that we wouldn't lose heart. He told stories about people who kept on knocking and kept on asking. And uh, we need to be devoted to prayer because there's something in the reality of prayer that makes it easy for us to go, I don't know if this is making any, any difference. Do you struggle with that at all? Um, uh, we, we need to remain steadfast because it's easy to lose energy. It's good to have some kind of a written record of when we write down prayer requests and put a date by them and then put a date by when and how God answers. Um, that's good for several reasons. One is um, we tend to forget that we even prayed something. <laughs> but if you have a written record, oh, that's right, that's right, I was, I've been praying for that. It's also very encouraging to keep going because if you write down answers, um, then when you still have some things with a blank line next to them, oh, no, no, I can keep praying this because look at, look at how God answers. He does give us a couple of hints, or not, not hints, but helps in this process. He tells us to be watchful and to be thankful. And I think those are both very good encouragements in the prayer process. Because to be watchful means we pray and then we watch to see how God might be answering. By the, by the way, um, I, I think that's why I'm reluctant sometimes to pray for people's salvation. Because um, God may answer, and he, part of the answer is he wants to use me. <laughs> so when I pray for other people, I also pray for myself. Lord, would you make me willing? Would, would you make me concerned about these people because, because I'm not naturally concerned? I know, now, some of you are looking at me with this horrified look on your face. They say, how did they have him be the speaker? Um, you talk to your pastor. He'll explain that next week. Um, um, we need to be praying that God works in them and that God works in us. And uh, we need to be thankful when he answers, because then when we see those answers, we'll keep going. So we live with that tension of prayer and proclamation. There's a lot in this passage about words. I'll get to that, because that's the second tension. There's a tension of words and deeds. Do you see it? Um, God, we, he prays that God may open up a door for our message, so that's words, um, that we may proclaim it clearly. Um, so there must be some words that we could use that are vague or unclear or not really relating to people where they are today. Um, we need to have our speech. That involves words. So there's a whole lot in this passage about words. So th there, need, there needs to be words that we say to people. We, we need to ask questions and listen carefully to their words. 
words and try to clarify and see if we understand what they're saying and how they believe that and how they came to those beliefs. But then we also need deeds, actions. Uh, It says that we should be wise in the way we act toward outsiders. So there's that balance or that tension of words and deeds. We, We need to say words, but our lives and our actions need to back up our words. Uh, That makes sense, doesn't it? I mean, if it's all words and no actions, people can dismiss, oh, it's just talk. If it's all actions without words, they may not ever connect our actions to the specific words of the gospel. Have you heard this? Uh, Sometimes I've I've seen this on some t-shirts and I've seen some posters. They say, um, uh, preach the gospel at all times. When necessary, use words. Have you seen this? I won't ask if you like it, because I don't like it. Um, uh, uh, when necessary, use it. It's always necessary. Some people say that, that those words were spoken by Francis of Assisi. And um, I'm pretty sure he didn't say that, because I'm just enough of an academic nerd that I do research on this. And I've read a lot of what Francis said, and I, I don't think he said that. Um, he said things like, make sure your actions back up your words to which we would say amen, yes. But, but um, Francis was a very bold evangelist. He used words all the time. I, here, uh, if, if Francis were sitting here today and we said, hey, did you say that quote, uh, preach the gospel at all times when necessary, use words? I think he would start laughing. He would say, it's always necessary to use words. And um, so um, we need to be careful that we don't fall into, well, if I'm just nice, well, we should be nice. I'm all in favor of that. But they'll never connect your niceness with the gospel. Here, let me, let me, I want to push this a little bit. Um, let's say you have uh, brand new neighbors who move in next door to you, and you want to welcome them to the neighborhood, and you want to be nice to them, and, and so you bake uh, chocolate chip cookies, and you bring them over. Welcome to the neighborhood. Here's what will not happen. After you leave, they will not look at the plate of cookies, and they go, I know why they brought those. They must realize that God is holy and righteous, but they, in their sins and their rebellion, have made a separation between them and their God. It's not as if God's arm is so short that it cannot save, but they, in their sins and their unrighteousness and their wickedness, have made a separation. But God, in his mercy and his love, took on flesh and and died an atoning death, a propitiation. No, they won't do that. They won't, no matter how good the cookies are. Sooner or later, some of you are going, oh, so we should slip uh, uh, Bible verses on paper in between the cookies. Uh, uh, perhaps. Uh, let's keep brainstorming. Uh, so, um, um, some of you are saying, doesn't he have medication for these kinds of problems? Uh, no, uh, sorry. Um, um, we, we live with a tension of words and deeds, and we need to find ways of expressing. What, why is your faith so important to you? What, what are the aspects of the gospel that are most precious to you? What, what are the reasons why you believe the gospel is true? And what are the reasons why you're glad that it's true? Uh, we need to find words to express to people that our, that, our, that our faith is based on the gospel that is true and the gospel that is good. So we need uh, words, and we need to practice, and we need to try saying things out loud or uh, on our own and say, would that communicate with those people? So we live with that tension of words and deeds and prayer and proclamation. Third, we live with the tension of grace and salt. It's kind of an odd thing, but take a look in verse 6. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt. 
What does that mean? Um, well, a conversation that's full of grace, I think we understand that. It's good. It's good news. Grace is a good message. It's, it's an amazing message that God, a God of holiness and righteousness, could accept people like us, rebellious sinners, because of his mercy and his grace and the specific grace of his dying on the cross. That's, that, that's good news. We need to find ways to tell people the good news so that it sounds like good and, good, and they want to hear more. But we also need to find ways that it has salt, that it's provocative, that it makes them thirst for more. Uh, there's a whole lot of discussion. What, what did Paul mean about this conversation be uh, seasoned with salt? There are some um, older Jewish rabbinic writings that talked about um, the book of Proverbs and the wisdom literature of the Old Testament as a kind of salt. Remember when you read, the, read some Proverbs? It's just these short little phrases that, oh, now what does that mean? It made you thirsty to, to hear more. So we need to find ways to articulate our faith so that people wonder, well, no, that's different than I thought. Um, th- this is why I do think questions are so very powerful. We need to become expert questioners, asking, well, now, now that's interesting. How, how did you come to believe that? Or I, I wonder why people believe that. Um, we need to learn how to become um, um, rabbinic, the way rabbis taught, with answering questions with questions. Have you, have you read through the Gospels and seen how very often Jesus answered a question with a question? Um, so many times he didn't answer a question, at least not right away. Um, uh, people came to Jesus and said, is it, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? And Jesus said, well, if you had an animal that fell into the ditch, wouldn't you pull it out? Or they said, uh, is it okay for us to get a divorce? And he said, what, what did Moses write? This is very Jewish, by the way. I told you I grew up Jewish, so, so this didn't seem surprising to me when I read this. Jewish people always answer questions with questions. Why shouldn't we? Oh, good. Oh, good. I was afraid I was going to have to explain that. Um, I, I grew up with conversations where it was I would ask a question and I would get a question in return. I remember gra- calling my grandmother, Grandma, how's the weather? And she said, how could the weather be in Florida? Um, maybe you don't get that. I don't know. Florida, it's very hot. It's always hot. It's always, you know, it's like, um, so um, I remember calling my uncle or talking to my uncle one time. I said, so, so how are you doing? He said, why do you ask? Um, how's your family compared to who? I mean, it, it's... it's uh, but, but Jesus was a master at answering a question with a question. Remember that, that man who came to Jesus and said, um, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Could you imagine? What a, what a wonderful opportunity for a gospel presentation. And Jesus answered the question with a question. Why do you call me good? It's provocative. It, it, it engages the person in the answering process. And so we need to find ways to say things that when people go, wait, 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 that's different than I thought. Um, you know, um, maybe uh, you know of uh, Tim Keller, the pastor in Manhattan in New York City, planted a church there almost 30 years ago. When he first moved to New York City, um, I, I've heard him tell this story a number of times, he... Um, Many, many people were asking him, what kind of church are you planting? We got all sorts of churches here in New York, and we have this kind, this kind, this kind. Are you going to be one of those hellfire and brimstone pastors? Are you going to talk about fire and hell all the time? Because we got a lot of those too, you know. And, and Keller wrestled with, how do I answer that question? Because he does believe in hell. 
Um, so, um, but, but, you know, if, if he just gave a simple answer, you know, do you believe, are you, are you one of those hellfire preachers? Yes. That would be the end of the conversation. They would be not salt to, to engage them in the conversation more. So he started experimenting with, how, how am I going to answer this? And he said, he started saying to people when they asked, do you believe all that stuff about fire and hell? And he said, well, you know, I think you could probably read that stuff about fire as a kind of metaphor. And they would go, oh, good, you're not one of those crazy fundamentalists. And then he said, and, and if it is, I, I think fire is a metaphor for something far worse than fire. What? what? Uh, exactly. That, and and what, are you, what are you talking about? Well, you know, if, if hell really is separation from God and all of his goodness and all of his love and all of his grace, uh, that must be horrible. I think fire doesn't even begin to talk about how horrible that is. See, that's grace and salt. And we need to think through that about how we can do that. Um, there's one more tension in this passage, or at least alluded to in this passage. It's the tension of reception and rejection. We've got prayer and proclamation, words and deeds, grace and salt. There's reception and rejection. Some people receive it. Some people reject it. We know that some people re- received it because we have this letter to the Colossians. Obviously, some people in the city of Colossae responded. They received it. Otherwise, it wouldn't be a letter. Paul reminds them in chapter 1 that he sent Epaphras to them, and he preached the gospel, and people heard it, and they responded. So we know that people receive it. But in this passage, he says that he, is, um, uh, that he may proclaim this mystery of Christ, for which I am in chains. He was in prison. Paul went to prison a number of times. In fact, we know that his life came to an end in prison where they executed him. Um, So I would say that's rejection. Everywhere you go, everywhere you tell people about Jesus, some people are going to say, this is the most wonderful news in the world, please tell me more. And other people will say, shut up, or worse. We shouldn't be surprised. That's the essence of the gospel, because the gospel is bad news as well as good news, isn't it? It's the the bad news that we're totally sinful and cannot save ourselves. We need a savior. And and, and people can smell that. They can hear it. They can can pick it up. And for some people, "Eh, I don't want to hear anymore. We shouldn't be surprised. We should be prepared for that. And so we need to be prepared for that. And as we tell our message of grace and salt, of words and deeds, we pray and ask God to work so that it would be both good news and bad news for people. Um, Let let me share this story. I've reached the stage in my life now where I have um, an increasing number of witnessing opportunities to people in the medical professions. Oh, good. Somebody got that. I see a lot of doctors. Um, and um, uh, years ago, I had some very, very severe pain in my back, and I, had to, I eventually needed surgery on my spine, which is very scary. But, um, um, but before that, uh, they, they tried to do all sorts of things to alleviate the pain, short of surgery. Nothing worked. And one of the things they do is they, they, they try this in, a series of injections in your spine. I'm sorry if this is, if this is uh, gross. Sorry. But um, so you go see a doctor, and he sticks you with a needle in your spine, and he injects something to take away pain, and then you come back for two weeks later, 
later for shot number two, and then two weeks later for shot number three, and then that's supposed to take away your pain, which it did <laughs> for a month. And then, uh, okay, so, so it's the same doctor and the same nurse, and, and here I am, and I don't know if you've had this experience, but doctors like to um, ask you questions right as they're about to do something painful to you. Have you noticed? They call this speech anesthesia. It doesn't work. And uh, so, um, oh, so Mr. Newman, uh, what do you do for a living? You know, they, they give you a pillow to hunch over, and uh, the doctor is behind you, and, and there's a nurse standing in front of you with her hand on your shoulder. Don't worry. And I'm just scared stiff. I'm, I'm shaking. I'm nervous. I'm uh, horrified. And the doctor wants to strike up chit-chat with me. Um, Mr. Newman, what do you do for a living? I thought, oh, no. No, please, no. Because um, at the time, I worked for a crusade. Uh, it's not a good conversation starter. And um, so, Mr. Newman, what do you do for a living? Oh, I, 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 I'm in Christian ministry. Oh, that's fascinating. I thought, no, it's not. And, um, uh, and, and so, you know, so he wants to talk about what I do for a living. Huh. And, and then two weeks later, he come back. Oh, Mr. Newman, how, you know, how's your crusade going? No, he didn't say that. But anyway, so, and, and by the third time, he thinks that by now I'm calm because I didn't die on either of the previous two injections. And the nurse is still trying to comfort me. Don't worry, it'll be okay. And I'm thinking, how do you know? And, um, and, and so the, the doctor says, and, and by now he thinks he can, he can be a little bit more, uh, you know, conversational. And Mr. Newman, and he starts telling me about when he was in high school, he went to a church where all they talked about was hell. If you danced, you were going to go to hell. If you drank, you were going to go to hell. If you smoked, you were going to go to hell. And, and then he told me that his mother danced and drank and smoked, and he told her about that, and she didn't like that. And then the nurse chimes in, and she goes, oh, yeah, I think that's ridiculous. And then the doctor says, well, Mr. Newman, what do you think about all that? I'll tell you exactly what I thought. I thought, not now. I'm, I'm getting, uh, no, uh, uh, no. And, and, and so I, huh, I thought to myself, I don't really want to talk about Jesus. I want to talk to Jesus. Jesus, keep me alive. Uh-huh. And, um, and so... Um, um, he's, and so I eked out something like, oh, I, I'd really like to talk about this, but I'm a little preoccupied. And I go, oh, oh, yes, yes. Like I was reminding the doctor what he should be concentrating on, my spine. <clears throat> so um, um, I, I, he said, oh, oh, okay, we could talk about that later. And, and so I bought myself some time. I thought, what am I going to say to these people? Because um, they think my religion's just a bunch of stupid rules. And there's a whole lot of people who think that's what our faith is, by the way, just a list of rules. So when I was all finished with this, and they were all finished, and they, they have to stay in the room with you for a few minutes to make sure you don't die. That's what they told me. And um, so they brought it up again. So, Mr. Newman, what do you think about those lists, those lists of do's and don'ts? What do you think? And so I said, well, you know, I think we like those lists because if we keep the rules, then we feel good about ourselves. And if we know people who don't keep the rules, then we can feel bad about them, which makes us feel good about ourselves in a very sick kind of way. I said, but you know, the the stuff I need forgiveness for is a whole lot worse than any of those lists. The stuff I need forgiveness for are, are things like bitterness and anger and judgmentalism and, and harsh talking about people. And, and the doctor's eyes and nurses are getting wider and wider. And I thought, I'm just getting started. <laughs> it's a whole lot worse. It is, isn't it? If we're really honest, if we're honest about the sin behind the sin, 
not just what people might see or what people might hear coming out of our mouth, but the attitude of hatred or judgmentalism. Isn't that what Jesus preached in the Sermon on the Mount? You've heard it said that you shall not commit murder, but he who says you fool is guilty of murder. And, and so the more you understand of the sin behind the sin or the sin underneath the sin, the more you think, this is horrible. This is terrible. This is so bad, it needs a cross. Our sin is so horrible that nothing short of the death of the Son of God could pay for that. Now, I didn't preach all of that to this doctor and nurse. What I did say to them is I said, you know, what I love about Christianity is I have forgiveness for that kind of stuff, for stuff that's a whole lot worse than the stuff that's on that list. Now, I don't know whether that, I don't know what they thought. Um, I, I could tell by the way their faces were responding that this was different than the way they had heard Christianity explained before. This sounded to them like maybe, I hope, I'm praying grace and salt. I have no idea how they responded. I'm, I'm delighted in a strange way to tell you that I haven't needed to see them again. <laughs> But I have prayed for them a lot, and I pray that God would bring other people into their lives who could articulate that message in the same kind of way, so that more and more and more people may hear it and go, wait a minute, wait, wait, wait hold it, that, that's different than I thought. That's, that's better. My, my problem is worse than I thought, but the gospel solution is better than I thought. One more story, because I said that this, uh, this involves reception and rejection. There are some people who reject and reject and reject, and yet later on they receive. There are people who say, no, 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 and decades later they respond. Again, I worked with the C.S. Lewis Institute. For, for the first half of his life, he was an atheist, with lots of very clearly articulated reasons why he was an atheist. And then some things started getting through. Here's one of my favorite stories. I, 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 I interviewed uh, a number of different people about how they shared their faith with family members and how that went. And one woman told me about how um, she became a Christian when she was 16 years old through a youth group, and she had parents who were not Christians, and she came home and witnessed to them, and nothing worked. They didn't want to hear it. No, no, no. Please stop talking. And for decades, she tried reaching out to her parents. Um, when her father was 80 years old, her mom had died. Her father was now living alone. He was kind of a recluse. He was in this new retirement village, and um, nothing had ever gotten through, or so she thought. And then some Christians started inviting this man in his 80s now to come to church. No, 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 I don't do that. My daughter, she's religious, but no, I don't do that. And, um, but they kept asking him. They kept knocking. They kept praying. And eventually they invited him to come to church on Easter. And he figured, well, you know, if you're going to go once, that's probably the day. Sure, why not? And he goes to church, and he hears this message about Jesus rising from the dead and Jesus paying for sins and that if you trust in him you can have forgiveness of sins you can have eternal life and this guy responds and he comes down forward and he receives Jesus and he becomes a believer and he calls his daughter that afternoon you know what he said he said you never told me he rose from the dead I would have believed if you would have mentioned that she was furious she's I've been telling him that for years for decades I sent him books about the resurrection he didn't have ears to hear we need to keep praying. We need to devote ourselves to prayer. We need to keep praying and telling people the good news because some will respond and they'll think this is the best news in the world. They, they might even want to sing. Blessed assurance. 
Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. Isn't that wonderful? Let me pray. Let's pray. Father, we are amazed at the way you have worked to lead us out of darkness and into light. At one time, we too were foolish and deceived and enslaved, and yet you set us free. You opened up our eyes. Um, Lord, for anyone who's here this morning who hasn't come to that point, would you work in their heart and draw them to yourself so that this would make sense, that this would resonate with what's deep inside them? And, Lord, we ask that you would use us in the proclaiming of this message to people around us. It's no mistake that they're in our lives. You place them next door at the next desk or in the same sphere. Um, Would you help us to start conversations, even if we don't know where those conversations will go? Would you help us to be bold, even in spite of ourselves, if we are evangelistic cowards? Because you can use us in the proclaiming of this great news, this great news of grace and truth. We pray this in our Savior's name. Amen.